Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a loose affiliation of concerned citizens with only the good of the country in mind. That and Maurice Gohan on an imagined future for reality TV, Reid Berkovich on the game-like qualities of QAnon, and Rob Long on talking truth to actor. But we begin this week in a carpet shop in Beirut. Hadi Maktabi is an art historian, Instagrammer, as well as a dealer and, above all, a lover of antiques carpets. He runs a family business in the Lebanese capital in which the woven treasure is piled high. But Maktabi reaches out across the planet both via Instagram and as a collaborator with the V&A in London, the Louvre in Paris and Dublin's Chester Beatty. Culture Files' Anya Gallagher put through a call to the recently blast-damaged Hadi Maktabi Gallery for Rare Carpets and Antiques, Beirut. In Asia, it's been the art of weaving that has been the greatest purveyor of ideas, motifs, themes, political messages, you know, incitements to revolution. I mean, this is what Lenin did after the Bolshevik takeover in 1918. There were great hordes of uh, Armenian and Azerbaijani rugs spreading communist propaganda. And it's been this way in Turkey, in Iran, in India, all over the world, really until the present day, because these objects rotate and circulate very efficiently in society, and people understand them. This is how it is. My name is Hadi Maktabi. I run the Hadi Maktabi Gallery for Rare Carpets and Antiques, based in Beirut, Lebanon. Um, This is a fourth-generation dealership in antique carpets and textiles. And uh, we went uh, online in the early 2000s and uh, have a firm presence nowadays uh, on social media and other platforms. And so using our global network of agents, sub-dealers, you know, merchants scattered across the souks of uh, Cairo, Isfahan, Azerbaijan, you know, Istanbul and so on, and uh, uh, our uh, affiliations with auction houses in the U.S., and Europe as well, we managed to boost our transcontinental trade. And then when the pandemic hit uh, slightly less than a year ago and everything went online, um, I think it's no underestimation saying that maybe 95% of current business is online. And of that 95%, maybe something like 90% is overseas, not local. It's uh, social media and online platforms like the one we're using at the moment, have really made the world closer in a sense, while locally we're all far apart from our loved ones. You know, it's, uh, it's contradictory in a sense, but there you have it. I really like what I do and I greatly appreciate the, uh, the artworks that I look after, for which I am a custodian, I believe, until I find, uh, until a safer pair of hands takes them over. The world of oriental carpets is quite a wide one, but we can break it down in a number of simple ways, either by fabric and materials, in this case it's wool and silk for the most part, and We can also break them down by uh, region or country. Uh, But the best way of uh, distinguishing carpets in a scholarly and logical manner is by background. 
So we have tribal rugs, those made by nomads uh, living in tents and migrating between summer and winter pastures. Their uh, carpets are coarser, but they are more abstract. Their dye materials are more vibrant and bold, and the motifs are simpler. These were made in their tents for their own usage. Secondly, we have village carpets, and these were made in cottages, in farmhouses, and so on. And these carpets tend to be clunky, They do not have the essence or spontaneity of tribal carpets, but neither do they have the finesse of city carpets. Most famously, we have city workshop carpets, those designed by professional artists, where everything is symmetric and precise, not counts are higher. The silk content is far, far higher in this case. Designs tend to be either geometric and abstract, pictorial with the scenes depicting, say, uh, famous rulers or celebrities. I have a feeling which uh, seems to be backed by market movements uh, over the last year or so. Um, and uh, this is the second time I've seen it in the last 20 years or so. When they go and get stuff, people are more um, comforted or at ease by putting their hard-earned funds in uh, objects that are more secure. So in this case, antique carpets rather than new ones. The last time this happened was immediately following the financial crash of 2008 globally, when the price of gold went up, commodities like Brent oil and I don't know what went up. Antique objects, old objects, rare objects became more desirable. And I think this has been happening. Um, in a sense, people are stuck at home. So more and more people are uh, looking inwards now at redoing their homes. I have a very good friend and she's Iranian-Canadian, so her parents fled Iran in the 70s and they went to Toronto, like many. And I visited their home and I was really struck by not only the beauty of the rugs, but also I was really taken by how they were displayed. There wasn't much fuss in how they were displayed. They were all over the floors. Some of them were overlapping other ones. And it was very, not casual, but they were really used, I felt, which is a really nice aspect of the rugs. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, especially in Iranian society, both within Iran itself and, you know, the millions of expats around the world, carpets are a very integral component of the household, of society, of the household, of the economy, and so on. And so, uh, you know, historically, whenever someone had some surplus left over from work, inheritance, some other source of income, they'd buy some rugs, and they just stack them up at home, you know, one overlapping the other, one hidden under the other, you know, on a table here, over a mantelpiece there, under the bed, in a closet, just about anywhere. Uh, prior to modern-day banking reaching the Middle East, this was, this and gold, how you stored your wealth. But the great advantage with carpets was that you really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, it's a really beautiful type of um, art appreciation because it's so tactile and so warm. Yeah, and it is immediate in a sense. I mean, there are no rules saying this is more important than that. You like it, fair enough, end of story. And they are objects which uh, have soul. Ask anyone who has a carpet, there's always a story behind it. I was walking in the market here, I was, you know, went into an antique shop in a little village in the Cotswolds, or, you know, I, I was in New York and I attended an auction with my cousin and then this thing came up. And there's always a story behind it. It's never a mundane activity acquiring it. It's as much about the journey as the destination, really.
Hadi Maktabi there, and the reporter was Anya Gallagher. The Persian Carpet, The Forgotten Years by Hadi Maktabi is published by Halley Publications. Next on the Culture File Weekly, we take a call from comedian and writer Maurice Gohan, who, while in lockdown and prevented from performing stand-up, has somehow or other found the odd moment to watch television and to plan her own reality TV career. Been watching a lot of documentaries lately. I'm not a big TV person, because watching TV requires concentration for me, so I usually don't think to do it. I do love reality shows, though. And documentaries are like a cousin of reality shows. They're reality shows that went and got a degree. They're reality shows that have read Ulysses. Documentaries are the Paul Maskell of reality TV. Netflix added a load of Louis Thoreau documentaries a couple months ago, and I've been devouring them. I used to have a big time crush on Louis Thoreau as a teenager. He has that kind of nerdy hot thing going on. But I had terrible taste as a teenager. I fancied Ryan Tuberty. Like he was my number one celeb crush. I thought Ryan Tuberty was the hype of sophistication and humour and charm and sexiness. I placed him above Brad Pitt and all the members of Westlife. He was it for me. Anyway, back to Louis Thoreau, who is like a wild Ryan Tuberty, out there living life and documenting it, just standing there awkwardly asking questions. It's groundbreaking. I watched his documentaries on meth addicts, Nazis and sex offenders. A separate documentary for each one. Which is worse? Not objectively, I obviously can't decide that. And it probably isn't a moral question, so not objectively. But subjectively, who would you rather be roommates with? I cannot decide. I wouldn't want to live with a drug addict. I know that's probably not politically correct to say anymore, but I don't think it would be a very good time. I get annoyed if my roommate uses my frying pan that is designated for vegetables to cook a steak. I definitely couldn't handle a meth addict roommate. But a Nazi would be spouting racism at breakfast and reading from Mein Kampf. I wouldn't want that either. So does that leave a sex offender? Louis did show in his documentary... Sex offenders in LA can range from someone caught peeing in public to someone who did horrific sex crimes. Would I be willing to take that gamble? I could live with a public peer. I have public peed. I have a really small bladder. Bus Aaron never has bathrooms. So anytime I gig in Belfast, I usually have to ask the driver to pull over and I have to pee on the side of the motorway. Would that get me on the sex offenders list? Documentaries ask those questions. They're highbrow. To me, they're still not as good as a reality show. Everybody loves David Attenborough. He's not for me. Forget penguins in the Antarctic. Give me rich people in Chelsea who have been caught cheating on their girlfriend. I don't want to hear David Attenborough narrate some antelope getting killed. I want to hear the narrator on Come Dine With Me slag everyone off. Oh, whoopsie! And she's in the kitchen. Nobody told me the door was open. <laughs> Once again, numbers bring safety. 
Maybe I'm a reality show enthusiast because I'm a humanist. Or maybe I'm just brain dead. I don't love all reality shows. This is important. A good reality show is one where the cast aren't famous yet. It's why I only watch the first two seasons of the Real Housewives franchise, and I tune out the Kardashians. I don't want to see the lives of people who are famous. I want to watch normal people. 90 Day Fiancé is my current favourite. Americans get engaged to a foreign person, often someone they met on a chat room, and they bring them to the US on a 90-day visa to get married. It's very clear the two people don't really know each other, and I love watching their fights and displaying of clear incompatibility before they all inevitably still get married. It's so human, but like the worst part of humans, which is always the most interesting part. The recurrent question is whether the fiancé is there for love or a green card, which, in this day and age, is a bit rich of the Americans. Rome is burning, but are you here just for the pizza? My dream is to be on a reality show. I know some people dream of a Nobel Prize or being a millionaire, but all dreams are valid, and this is mine. I really think I'd be great. I've no sense of privacy, I'm addicted to gossiping, and I love a good confrontation. That's why I've started to message all the subjects of Louis Thoreau's documentaries. Meth addicts, Nazis, sex offenders, sure, but all still American citizens. 90 Day Fiancé, as narrated by Louis Thoreau. That smells like a hit to me. Comedian and writer Maurice Gohan there with yet another plan for world domination. On which subject? Do you believe that Donald Trump has been leading a crusade against an elite left-wing cabal of influential Satanists? Yeah, me neither. But for adherents to QAnon, the hyper-conspiracy theory come religion come political party, this and related ideas are just obviously true. You only have to open your eyes, do your research. But when our guest this time, gaming expert Reid Berkowitz, opened his eyes, did his research, he saw in QAnon another pattern. This novel viral organism appeared to share many techniques from interactive storytelling Telling, live action role playing or LARPing, and the whole world of alternative reality gaming, as he told Culturefile. Yeah, there are a lot of terms I would put alternate reality games or ARGs into that subset. Basically, anything that's a fiction that's being played in reality would fit. It could be immersive theater, it could be alternate reality games, it could be LARPs or live action role playing games. I think they all have a very similar purpose. And what's the purpose? The purpose is to tell a story. Right now it's very popular, but you have to be in New York or LA sometimes to really, you know, see Punch Drunk or Sleep No More, you know, or any of the the many, many fine interactive and immersive performances around. Uh, Being involved in an alternate reality game is slightly easier because you can access it through a computer. Um, But I'd have to say it's still a niche. (laughs) Tell us, in your opinion, before you bring a game's mind to it, what QAnon is. Q 
started on an image board called 4chan. And there was several of these characters. There was QAnon, but there was also FBI Anon, CIA Anon. So it was kind of a workshop thing. And the general concept of the game is that this person would be dropping clues to you from some intel source that only they possessed. The thing that uh, you realised from your own work in games design uh, revolves around this idea of aprophenia, which is this sort of sense that things are connected. And it's both something that a games designer can work with, but also a kind of hindrance to good storytelling. Yes, aprophenia is the perceived uh, meaningful connection of things that are just random. It's usually beneficial, you know, in our lives. It helps us make connections to things that we then later test out and see whether or not they're right. I mean, science itself is is steeped in apophenia, but it has the scientific process to help tease out what is real and what is a guess, right? But we all start with a guess. Now, in a game, when you are creating a story, apophenia can be really terrible because if the players have a lot of agency, if they can decide what to do, they may come across some random information and it may pull them in an entirely different direction from the story that you're trying to tell. And it could have them wandering away and and, and just wasting time and, and we, they'll become bored because there's no story there. So you always have to steer them back to you know what you think is the most entertaining uh, story. QAnon works the opposite way. There is no story. Um, there is no puzzle to really solve. So in this game, people are solving puzzles that are really just guided apophenia. So they're coming to things that feel like solutions, but are completely untested. And in often cases, are those people are being led to those conclusions by looking at random data. One of the most recent events, the storming of the Capitol, some people referred to it as a cosplay coup in that there was this certain kind of costume drama feel to what was happening there that had a kind of irreality to it. It was some some kind of theatrical pageantry. Yes, there was an element of LARPing to it, of people literally dressed in costumes <laughs> with horns on their head. And th those are the QAnon people. <laughs> the group at the Capitol was a very broad group. There were all kinds of different spectrum of people there. It wasn't all you know, just QAnoners, although they were heavily present and very visible. Again, because of this sense of drama that comes with fictional narratives. It was, uh, it was a plot point. What you suggest is that this is a, a kind of 21st century version of propaganda, a kind of gamified propaganda. Absolutely. Yes, I do believe that. I believe that this is, whether it's, um, you know, an official organ of a propaganda group or whether it's a group hijacking the official narrative that is being spread in the United States and other countries, um, it absolutely functions as, um, you know, uh, as propaganda. There, you know, the, the one thing that you can say about Q is, I mean, if we, if we assume that people are basically competent then you can judge the purposes of Q by its effects. And it is radicalizing people in a very specific narrative. Even though the conspiracy theories change moment to moment, 
the idea is still about distrusting the media. It's still about distrusting science. It's building an alternate world of alternate facts. Any problem can be blamed on any fictional plot point in the Q universe that they have literally created and point a bunch of very motivated, uh, radicalized people at any issue that they feel, you know, needs chaos. <laughs> you know, in many ways, maybe because I work in video games, I think all video games are positive. <laughs> I mean, people used to say, oh, all games are negative. But in reality, we were finding that it's just the opposite. All games are actually pretty positive, And people who play them tend to have much better psychological health than people who don't play them. But this is the first actually real negative game. Need a PG sticker on the box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, biased, right? But Because in a way, Q offers community. Yes, Q offers a great community. Um, it, it's fake. But is it fake? They all gathered together to storm the Capitol. There they were physically in, in conjunction with each other. It wasn't even just a, a virtual community. No, that's true. But that community was manufactured and was constructed by marketing companies. You know, there are people in this uh, Stop the Steal you know, uh, propaganda operating in the United States. And they are scooping together as many people they can get. And of course, they're going to include the QAnons, um, but they're going to include everybody else. This community is, um, it's real, but it's also manufactured around a goal, <laughs> around a propaganda. So it's not an organic community. It's a paid-for community. As a games designer, uh, say you were the antagonist here, what do you do to fight with it, to take its power away in some way? I, you know, I've definitely been asked this, can you create an anti-Q game? <laughs> for instance, a game that battles Q. I do, I do think that there could be a more serious game uh, you know, that, that, that can deconstruct Q or that can even lead to more community and more uh, genuine experience and a different way of looking at the world. But my instinct right now is that, you know, Q is running off of real problems in the United States that aren't games. <laughs> so I think that the solution to, uh, you know, a, a game that captivates people is probably something along the lines of uh, increased community and interpersonal relationships and genuine experiences in the real world. And so I think it's, it's exposure. You need to be, you need to, I don't know, go to a bar and hang out with Democrats and black people and Jews and scientists, whoever you're, you know, uh, so distanced from that you can project that they're, you know, magical pedophiles. People need real experiences. They need to, they need to be part of loving, caring communities uh, I don't. Th I think we've got a real problem with isolation in the United States. Reed Berkovich there with the less than final word on QAnon. And if you'd like to hear more from that interview, there's a raw video version of it now on the Culture File YouTube page. Yup. And finally this weekly, our latest martini shot from Rob Long, who has over the years been deeply traumatised by his contacts with actors. You might think. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. A brilliant actor once told me that the hardest thing to play is drunk. And then he told me how to do it. Now, there's an old saying that dying is easy, 
but comedy is hard, and that's essentially true. As anyone who's ever cast anything will tell you, if an actor can be funny, then he or she can be dramatic. But the reverse is not always true. Once, after a particularly funereal run-through on a show I was doing, the lead actress came up to me and squinched up her face and asked, I'm not funny, am I? She wasn't, at at all. I don't know why, just something missing, I think. Some lightness or quickness or nimbleness or magic X factor just wasn't there in her eyes. And she knew it, too. And we should have known it when we cast her by looking at her reel, which is a link to a video sampling of her work. All actors have that. It's supposed to show their past work and range. Her manager sent us hers, and we should have known from that moment that there were going to be problems. Now, usually a reel is just a simple collation of scenes from past work, often just identified by a simple title frame between each clip telling you what it's from. Hers, however, had been produced, as in lots of fast edits and a peppy underscore, sometimes interspersed with quotations from directors and actors she'd worked with along the lines of, uh, she's a terrific and versatile performer and would love to work with her again. Now, the kinds of things that you feel you need to say, in other words, about yourself, only if they're not true. And also this, it was mostly stuff from an action cop series where she had to talk urgently into a cell phone and peer disgustedly through the one-way glass at the perp in the holding room. I want this guy to go down, she growled at the older, former Broadway actor playing opposite. You care too much, he growled back in his inappropriate-for-a-cop character $6,000 suit. Tell that to my ex-husband, she re-growled back, and then they both stared moodily around the set. Great, we thought. Let's get her. Now, we did that because she was very popular with the network, which had bought our show, and they insisted that she had lots of range and potential. They told us to ignore her reel, that we get a very different performance. The trouble is, we ended up getting pretty much exactly that kind of performance. I want this guy to go down. And when what we really needed was, you know, just a funny mom. So when she asked, I'm not funny, am I? The right answer was, no, no, you're not. And we all should have known that. But the right factual answer isn't always, or even mostly, the right useful answer. So I thought a moment. I furrowed my brow a bit to make me look concerned that she was concerned. And then I said, oh my God, are you kidding me? You're great. I just don't feel you know, funny, she said. Because you're not, dear, is what I didn't say. But what I did say was, you know what, maybe you're working too hard on it. I don't know. I I think you're great. But maybe next time, just, you know, just throw it away. Now, throw it away means basically back off. Don't push the line so hard. Don't work so much. Don't act so much. In fact, stop acting altogether. Just say the line in a clearly enunciated voice and move away in a sprightly fashion. Actors pretty much hate hearing that, especially from writers, but the good ones, I mean, no, the great ones, know exactly what that means. It means say the lines and try not to act the lines. Relax and let the magic pixie dust that all great actors have just naturally sprinkle themselves on the words. It means say the words, but say them like a movie star, not like an actor. Throw it away. Which she did. 
It wasn't much better, but it had the right effect. She said her lines in a quick and clear voice, which kept the pace from getting draggy, and she successfully took the spotlight of disappointment from her performance and transferred it to her opposite, the male lead, who, although technically funny, was also technically whiny and unlikable, which we all found out together two weeks and a $3 million pilot later. So I didn't forget. Here's how you play drunk. You play not drunk. You don't play a guy weaving and slurring and bumping into stuff. You play a guy consciously, deliberately, carefully not doing any of those things. Which goes to show, being yourself is sad. Trying not to be yourself, that's hilarious. And that's it for this week. Next week, we get excited about a new project. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. Rob Long there, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more counterfeited intoxication next Saturday tea time. And of course, if that just seems far too long, Daily Culture File is back on Monday at 6.10pm on RTE Lyric FM. Till then, bye now.